Right, good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's turn in our copies of the scriptures to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and then he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to come before you and to come before your word, to preach, to to hear the word, and that our hearts may be changed, O Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us. O Lord, bring to light the things and the truths which you would have us to know, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Pardon me. Every now and then, through church history, there are important figures who make a tremendous impact for the gospel. Um, In my lifetime, I would say in our lifetime, one of the greatest voices and greatest heralds for the gospel is probably Billy Graham, at least in a wide-known uh, sense. Everybody in the world knows who Billy Graham is. Um, in his prime, Graham preached all throughout the world. He preached in many countries. He preached before uh, presidents. He preached before kings. He preached in the Soviet Union. He preached at the White House. I mean, there isn't anywhere where Billy Graham's message was not heard. He preached in arenas filled with people. Whether or not his presentation of the gospel was um, biblical, that's another question. He preached the gospel. And many people came to Christ as a result of his preaching ministry. And he is well known. And uh, since he's passed away, no one has been able to fill his shoes in a sense of notoriety. In the 19th century, names like D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon were also household names. If you lived in in UK during that period of time, everyone knew who Charles Spurgeon was. So much so that his sermons were published in the newspaper every Monday morning from the day previously so that people could read Charles Spurgeon's sermons. He was a well-known preacher. Everybody knew the name 
Charles Spurgeon. In the first century in Judea, there was also another household name. His name was John the Baptist. Everybody in Judea knew who John the Baptist was. He came out of nowhere. He was living in the wilderness. He he was a strange guy. He wore camel hair, a leather belt, uh, sort of like a throwback to the prophets of old. Uh, Pretty much uh, represented a lot like Elijah. And he comes out of nowhere and he, he finds himself in the Jordan River baptizing people. Who could this be? And he's preaching a, a penetrating message. He, he's calling out the Jewish leadership, calling them broods of vipers. And he's saying to people, you need to get right with God. He's calling people to repentance. He's calling people out for their sin. And he's doing something that no one's ever saw before. He's baptizing people. If you are a religious Jew and you have any fear of God at this time, you're sitting down at the dinner table. You're talking about John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? This is a man who who clearly uh, shook up the the norm, um, the mundaneness of life. Uh, Something had happened. Something new was, was taking place. And it wasn't just him. It was God. God was doing something through him. And inquiring minds want to know, Who is John? As it says in verse 15, the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Who is this guy? No one's quite like him. Thousands of people are going to see him. People are dipping themselves in water in ritual cleansing. Is he the Messiah? Is he indeed the Christ? Is he the one to come? In fact, in John's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, we learn that a delegation of both Pharisees and Sadducees were sent to John to inquire, who are you? Are you the Christ? Should we look for another? And I want you to think about that. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they make up the body of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body of the religious establishment in Israel. Uh, The Sadducees were the majority ruling party. They would be more like the liberal, secular leaders. And then you had the Pharisees, they were more like the conservative uh, vanguard uh, trying to conserve the traditions of, of Judaism. Um, and so you had these two parties who really didn't like each other, and they both send representatives to John, and they want to know, who are you? And clearly, he's, I believe when he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? He's directing that exactly at the leadership from Jerusalem. Now they say, who are you? If John was a lesser man he would take an opportunity here to really brag about himself. He would take an opportunity to really, I mean, everyone's looking to him as as someone who could be the Messiah. He could easily take advantage of them. But he reminds them he's just a voice crying in the wilderness. There is someone greater who's coming. And that is the point of our sermon. It says in verse 16, when John answered them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. John knew that he was just the forerunner. John knew that he was the opening act. John knew that someone mightier, that word might indicates power, authority. It it, it symbolized sovereignty. Someone who was mightier, the mighty one himself. God in the flesh was coming and he was preparing the people to meet their Messiah. 
the anointed one of God. You see, John knew who he was because he knew who God was. He understood his place in the big picture. He understood that he was just a servant of God and nothing more. While the people loved him, while he was popular, while his name was well known throughout the region, it didn't go to his head because he wasn't there to make a name for himself. He was there to make a name for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John understood his place. John understood he existed to bring glory to the mightier one than he and not himself. And he is an example to all of us. He's an example to ministers of the gospel, those who preach and teach the word, those who are engaged in ministry. It's a reminder to men like me, to like Pastor Paul, that we do not exist for our glory, but we exist for the glory of Christ. We do not exist to make a name for ourselves. We exist to make God's name great. But it's also a reminder to all of us in each and every one of our lives. It's not about you. It's about someone mightier than you. Too often today, Christianity and evangelicalism is all about you and how you can have a better life and how how you can uh, have an enhanced version of yourself and a better version of yourself through Christianity. That is not what Christianity is about. And so let's look and take, take a look and see exactly what John thinks about Jesus and what he says about Jesus. The first thing he says to them, he says, One is coming who is mightier than I, whose strap of the whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Let's look at that first statement there, which is a powerful statement. He's, he's saying, the one who's coming is so mighty, I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. Now, what does that mean, right? That that's actually has a very rich cultural background to it. And to understand that, you need to understand the historical context. In, in, in ancient uh, Judaism, when rabbis would, uh, would get uh, students together and form a school, the students would not pay tuition. They would not pay money to join the school of a certain rabbi. If you were selected to, to learn under a certain rabbi and come under his teaching, uh, the payment would be that you would basically devote your life to serving that rabbi. You would do everything for that rabbi. You would do everything so that he would never have to lift a finger. You were basically like his servant. If you went there, you opened the door for him, you pulled out the chair, you got him a cup of water, uh, you, you took his cloak off, you made sure he had food uh, every night for dinner. The, his students, the rabbi's students, were his servants. And that was their form of payment to their teacher, to their master, was to, to basically make sure that all of their needs were taken care of and that they wouldn't have to lift a finger. However, there was one thing that a student would not have to do, and that student would not or be forbidden to unstrap their teacher's sandal. That was considered too degrading for a Jewish man. Uh, to, to have your student unstrap your sandal was, was below a child of Abraham. And so that was the one thing that, according to ancient rabbinical Judaism, a rabbi student could not and would not do, and it wasn't expected to be done. 
And what does John say? John says, the one who's coming, I am not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. In other words, the most menial tasks of a rabbi student were expected, but, but it wasn't expected to unstrap the sandal. That was too low. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy of that degrading expectation. In other words, John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of Christ. I want you to think about that statement. Because John is a man who was baptized and anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. In his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. He jumped for joy. And through his whole life, this is a man whose life was controlled and constrained by the Holy Spirit. This is a man who preached the Word of God, who was sold out for God. And people came and they listened to him preach. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of Christ. I am lower than low. He had a proper perspective of who he was. Often the problem we have with ourselves is we think much higher of ourselves than we ought to. Is that right? I think that the biggest problem among Christians is that our view of ourselves is often much better than what it really is. We do not suffer from low self-esteem. Let me make that clear. We do not suffer from low self-esteem. We have too much esteem. That's our problem. We think too highly of ourselves. And rather than seeing ourselves as servants of Christ, we see Christ as our servant. And when he doesn't do what we want or what we expect him to do, we kick and scream like a little tantrumy child. No. Not only are we slaves of Christ, but when we understand who we are as sinners before a holy God, when we understand the weight and gravity of how, how just uh, hopeless we are apart from God, we are unworthy to even be called his servant. It changes the dynamic of how we think about God. It changes the dynamic about how we think about others. You see, oftentimes... We will take pride in what we do. We look at our accomplishments, our achievements, and our spirituality, and our spiritual progress, and our disciplines, and we we look down upon those who are not living the life that we live. We may not say it, but we think it, we feel it inside, when in fact we should be comparing ourselves, not with others, but comparing ourselves with Christ. When we compare ourselves with the Holy One of Israel, when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ, we will find, we will find that we are nothing. It's having a proper view of self. A few applications is, if we have a proper view of self, it'll give us a proper view of others. We will, we will not see others as below us, but we will see others as also unworthy servants in whom we are to serve and minister to and love. It'll affect our relationship with Christ and that we don't take it for granted. He is still deserving and worthy of our utmost respect and honor. 
Any service we render to Christ is a privilege. We are unworthy even of the most menial test. I want you to think about that because, because in the church, I find that this is often the case. That in the church, we often want to serve in areas where we are recognized, where we get the glory. And in the menial tasks of the church, we kind of ignore it, shrug it off, and look the other way and say, someone else will do that. That's below me. I want you to realize something. If you understand who you are before God, you are not, and I am not even worthy of the most menial tasks in the church. Oh, taking out the trash? That's dirty. That is not below you. That is above you. You are, you are not worthy of such a task. It is a privilege to serve Christ even in the most menial tasks. Going out there and ministering to a person who's broken down and poor in you, 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 you that is below you, not below you, it is above you. You are not worthy of such a task. When John said he is not worthy to untie the sandal of Christ, he understood a proper perspective of who he was. Secondly, not only was Christ mightier in the sense that he was greater than John, pardon me, but he says, I come baptizing you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of sandals is not worthy. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus comes with a greater baptism. The hallmark of John's ministry was baptism. He is, after all, John the Baptist. People often say, where did the Baptist uh, denomination start? Well, John the Baptist, right? He was the first Baptist. John the Baptist was known as someone who was dipping people in water. It was something new. It was different. It was unique. But he's saying, guess what? As as great as you think that is, the one who's coming after me, the mightier one, he's baptizing you with fire. You see, the whole point of baptism was to symbolize ritual cleansing. It was to symbolize... That, that you were repenting of your sins, you were acknowledging that you were a sinner and that you were defiled and you were filthy. It was to acknowledge that you were unworthy of the Messiah who was coming and you need to be cleansed and washed and renewed. And that cleansing came uh, not outwardly, right? The, the baptism was just the symbol. The cleansing was going to come inwardly and that was the baptism by fire. Because Jesus is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's only through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and not through water, but through the fire, the purifying, consuming fire of God, that sin is purged in us. God is a consuming fire. We shall serve Him with reverence and awe. In the Old Testament, he uh, revealed himself in the burning bush and in a pillar of fire to ancient Israel. His fiery presence on Mount Sinai that one could not approach. It's through that, it's through that imagery that God reveals himself as one who is pure. 
In the book of Revelation, we see Christ revealed as one whose eyes were like fire. He sees through us into our soul. He's purer than we can imagine. And we need to be purified. In the ancient world, when the smelter wanted to purify metals, the metals would be put in a cauldron on extremely high temperatures. The fire was cooked up quite a bit because it was in that fire that all the impurities would be evaporated and the dross would be removed. And so it is the baptism by fire that Jesus brings is greater and it is a mightier baptism than the baptism of water. The baptism of water was to symbolize it. But now we no longer are baptized with the baptism of John for that was a baptism of res- um, of repentance and preparation, but there was also, we have come after the cross. We are looking in retrospect back to Christ, to his death, to his resurrection. And now as Christians, we can all say that we are baptized in the spirit. Every one of you is baptized in the spirit. You have been submerged and dipped in the fiery presence of God and you are a new person. What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? You see, in the last 150 years or so, the charismatic church has uh, given us a different spin on what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is. And uh, in this new interpretation that's only about 150 years old, they declare that this is a second experience, right? You get born again, you get saved. But that's not enough, right? That's enough to get you to heaven and escape hell. But if you really want to live an empowered life and have the gifts of the Spirit, speak in tongues and prophesy and do miracles. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second blessing. And so within Pentecostalism, there's two classes of Christians. There's the, there's the regular Christian and there's the baptized in the Holy Ghost Christian. I remember when I was a Pentecostal, my pastor at the time said to me, I wanted to serve. I wanted to do evangelism. I wanted to serve in Sunday school. And, and he says, well, listen, you can't do that Till you're baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. I was a young believer at the time and I, I really wanted to serve. And so I would go up every Sunday. They would have your, their baptism service and they would push me and hit me and try to knock me on the floor. Everything to get me to speak in tongues. It wouldn't work. I just couldn't do it. I was so discouraged. I thought I'll never serve in the church. And then it hit me one day. Just say whatever they want you to say. And I did. I just let it all out. I just... Give a bunch of gibberish and boom, there was my ticket. I got to serve in any ministry I wanted. I'll admit it. I faked it. That's why I'm Baptist now. We are all baptized in the spirit from the moment we're converted. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. All of us. In one spirit, not two spirits, one spirit, all of us were baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. All of us were baptized, all drank of one spirit, all of in the spirit, all have the gifts of the spirit. When you come to faith in Christ, you are baptized in the Holy Ghost. You are filled with the Holy Ghost. You're empowered by the Holy Ghost. There are not two classes of Christians. There's only one class of Christian. What are the signs or what are the 
evidences of being baptized in the Holy Ghost? Well, the first one is like we talked about before. It's to be born again. That's the initial, that's the initial step of being baptized. You are born again. You're regenerated. You're, you're a new person. That's a work God does. You don't do it. You don't make yourself born again. Just like you have nothing to do with you being born out of your mother, you have nothing to do with being born again. It's a work that God does. Titus 3, 4 says this, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He poured out richly on us, and it's through the Holy Spirit you're regenerated. It's a work of God. Breathe on us. Breath of God. Through the Holy Spirit, we are indwelt. John 14, 16 through 17. Jesus says, "Ask, I, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When you become a born-again Christian and, and you're regenerated, the Holy Spirit now takes residence in your life. Amen. He dwells in us. He, he, he Basically, this is His home now. The, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides with us and He stays with us forever. Amen. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know what that word means? Uh, the guarantee, that word guarantee in Greek literally means a, a wedding ring. It's an engagement ring. It's basically God saying, I'm making a promise to you. And I'm giving you the whole spirit, Holy Spirit, my spirit is a down payment that I'm going to complete the work of salvation. I'm going to finish this job. I'm, I'm committed to you to the very end. And I'm giving you my spirit as a pledge that I will finish the job. I'll bring you home. Amen. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Acts 1.8, you will receive power, Jesus says, when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. How does he empower us? He empowers us twofold. He empowers us to live the life of righteousness and godliness. You can't live a Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. Try as you may, you will fail, and you will fail, and you will fail. Uh, try to live out the life of Christ in the flesh. You'll never do it. You might do it for a while, and you're going to give up. Because it can't be done in the flesh. You can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I think the part of us so many times as we, we're failing because we're not looking to the Spirit, we're looking to ourselves. And secondly, we're empowered for ministry. We're empowered for ministry. All throughout the Old Testament, we read about when the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson and he slew the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. We read about David when he fought Goliath, this giant that everyone was terrified of. He said when the Holy Spirit came upon, rushed upon him, he took out Goliath with one slingshot stone to the forehead. When the Holy Spirit rushed upon you, you were equipped and empowered for ministry. All those guys I talked about, the Spurgeons and the Moody's and the, and the Billy Grahams, could not be what they were apart from the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers the man to preach. 
It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do whatever ministry, whether it's a children's ministry, whether it's evangelizing, whether it's raising your kids, whatever your ministry is, God empowers you. Amen. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Amen. And more importantly, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He is not just the Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And His design and purpose for us is to make us holy. To make us like Christ. And He will accomplish the purpose for which He set out. Have you been baptized in the Spirit? Have you been dipped and submerged into the river of life of the Spirit? Have you been born again? Have you been purged by the refiner's fire? Well, if so, then good. If not, then I urge you, repent and believe in the gospel. Come to faith in Christ. Give it up. Stop trying to live the life in the flesh. You need Christ. You need, you need the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you go to church and you're a religious person. You may not be born again. You need power. And if you are a Christian, you have been born again, let me tell you something else that could happen. Our life of the Holy Spirit is, goes in ups and downs. That's why it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, do not quench the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. And the way I, and you know, if you look at the language of the New Testament, oftentimes, particularly in the book of Acts, it talks about after Pentecost, after the, Apostles were baptized in the Spirit when they were in a preaching ministry or when they were engaging or when they were healing. It says they were filled with the Spirit. You see, as Christians, we're to pursue and seek constant fillings of the Holy Spirit. We need to be refilled. The tank runs dry sometimes. The tank runs dry due to sin, due to the fact that we neglect the means of grace. And the tank runs dry. And we need a filling. We need to be refilled. And what does it mean to be filled? It means to be, to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself. It, it's, it, it will result in feeling what God feels and thinking what God thinks and wanting what God wants and speaking with God's power and, and praying and ministering to God's strength. It means God has complete control of our lives. And we can only be filled when we surrender ourselves and throw ourselves at Christ Amen. and seek Him to completely fill us. Amen. Oh, that we would know greater what it is to be filled and baptized in the Spirit. Well, now that we know that there's a greater baptism, there's also a greater judgment. John preached judgment. I want you to notice something it says here. It says in verse 18, <clears throat> verse 18, so with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people John preached the good news he preached the gospel but with the good news comes the bad news with the good news of salvation and forgiveness and acceptance with God comes judgment you can't know the love of God till you know the wrath of God Amen. you can't know this, what salvation is until you know how desperate your situation is of judgment and wrath John preached he preached, he was a fire and brimstone preacher, right? 
He, he wasn't a candy-coating preacher. He was, you think Paul Washer's hard? John the Baptist makes Paul Washer look like a choir boy. John the Baptist was a fiery preacher, but Jesus was more. Jesus preached more about hell than he did about heaven. Christ preached the judgment of God. Listen to what he says in verse 17 about Christ. He said, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the imagery there is agricultural. In the ancient world, when you had a harvest, you brought all the grain and you threw it on the threshing floor. And an ox would, would stomp on the, on the grains and it would separate the, the wheat kernel from the, from the husk. Right? It would all separate. And so then what the farmer would do is he'd get a winnowing fork, like a big pitchfork, throw it up in the air. And what would happen? The wind would blow the chaff away. And the seeds would fall straight down to the ground. And so he would separate the wheat from the chaff. And then the wheat would be gathered into the barn. It was used and ground down to make bread. It was used for food. And the chaff would be burned up with unquenchable fire. This imagery is used often in the Gospels, particularly in and we see also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, when Jesus speaks about um, the wheat and the tares. Similar imagery is used. The wheat is gathered to barn, and the chaff or the, the tares will be burned with unquenchable fire. What is this telling you? Well, for John, this is very real. He's looking at his audience saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? He's speaking to primarily a Jewish audience. And he's telling them, listen, you're resting in the fact that you're Abraham's children. You're resting in the fact that you're religious outwardly. He says, but I'm telling you, you think I'm judgmental? Christ is going to come and he has perfect judgment. He is going to separate the wheat and the chaff. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. He's going to separate the wheat and the tares. He's going to make a distinction. And that is precisely what happened with Jesus' ministry. If you thought John's ministry was penetrating, was convicting, was made people uncomfortable, Christ's ministry even more. The Pharisees didn't know what to make John, but they actually liked him. They hated Jesus. The Jews, they were divided. Christ basically sent a shockwave into into the Jewish uh, 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 people, and then you either loved them or you hated them. It was that simple. In fact, the majority hated him. So much so that they would bring and ask for judgment upon themselves and say, crucify him, crucify him. May his blood be on our children. In the end, only 120 people were saved and part of the church. His winnowing fork was in his hand. He was about to bring judgment upon Israel. But Christ judges all of us. He is the judge of all mankind. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read in verse 9, 
whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We exist to please God. Why? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is going to judge every human being one day. He is going to judge us one day. We are either going to be found in him, we are going to be found imputed with the righteousness of Christ and beloved, and we will be found wanting, we'll be found naked, and we'll be found destitute. Where will you be found on judgment day? And Christ's judgment is, is pure and perfect. There's no fooling Jesus. He looks into our hearts. He looks into our minds. He knows what we think. He knows what we feel. Nothing's hidden from him. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, because when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, and each one will receive his commendation from God. Jesus Christ looks into us. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. That's why he entrusted himself to no one because he saw what was in man. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we think. He knows what we feel. Look in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. On verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also answered saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There will be a great separation one day and all those whose works were done in righteousness will will have been done unto the Lord, will enter His glory. And all those who neglected and thought, well, I'm saved by grace. I could just do whatever I want. I don't have to do anything really. I can just sit back and relax. Have been deceived by a false gospel and will find themselves on judgment day very sorry. I think we must take Christ so much more seriously. The word fire is used once again in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 9. We are told that Christ will return in verse 8 in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. John is saying, judgment is coming. Messiah is here. Here's the beautiful thing. When Christ came to this world, he came to die on a cross so that the very judgment that you and I deserve, the wrath that is coming to us, that we earned, that we worked hard for, Jesus took all of it on himself. He stood in the gap. He stood in our place. He was judged for us. He was punished for us. He bore the wrath of God for us. And he rose from the dead victorious to grant us the promise of eternal life for those who believe in him. Hallelujah. 
you will either be judged on judgment day and you will bear your sins and you will pay for them on your own. And trust me, hell is no party. You tell people they're going to hell, oh, who do I care? I'm going to be with my friends. I'll have a good time. There is, that is the biggest lie that's ever been perpetuated. And it's amazing how many people believe that. I know when I talk to people and I talk about hell and they scoff and they mock, I always say the same thing. You better hope you're right. You're banking your eternal, complete eternal destiny after you die on a whim, on a feeling. Right? You wouldn't make those kind of gambles with, if you went to the doctor, and the doctor says, listen, I have evidence that, that you're going to die of a stroke if you don't take this medication. You're going to say, ah, I don't care. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. Would you, would you gamble like that? What do you know? You don't know if you're going to have a stroke or not. You wouldn't gamble. You would listen to the doctor. So when, when, when someone who's a minister of the word, who has command of the word, tells you, this is what's going to happen if you don't believe People gamble. They're like, oh, I don't believe it. And then on their deathbed, you see a different story, don't you? I've seen it time and again. Finally, Christ is our perfect example. I think when you look at all of this, you say to yourself, here's this one mightier than John. He can't untie his sandal. And yet, what do we learn about Jesus? It says here in verse 21, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you're my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You're John the Baptist. You're preaching repentance. You're preaching baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is coming to you for baptism? He's not even one worthy to untie his sandal. I mean, put yourself in John's shoes. Baptize you, Lord? Why would I baptize you? I'm the one who needs to be baptized. It should be the other way around. What? Christ is sinless. He has nothing to repent of. There's no sin to repent of. He has nothing to be washed and cleansed of. He is the pure, spotless Lamb of God. But what does Jesus say to John? Matthew 3.15 says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Jesus did not need to be baptized. He did not need forgiveness of sins, but he submits to baptism. Why? Because Christ came to be numbered with the transgressors. Christ came to this world to identify with sinful humanity. He came to have solidarity with sinners because he would go to the cross and die for us. It was fitting that the Messiah would fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. And as far as the old covenant is concerned, the baptism of John is the commandment of God. And Jesus always does what's pleasing to the Father. Jesus didn't need to offer sacrifices in the temple because he had no sin to be forgiven. But he does it so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. 
You want to know the beautiful thing here? It's that Jesus didn't just die for us, he lived for us. It's called the active obedience of Jesus. It means that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly 100% obedient, sinless life to God. He never once made a mistake. He never once erred. He never once sinned. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful action. He never had a sinful word come out of his mouth. Think of that. Perfect sinlessness his entire life. And he obeyed every commandment of God to perfection. And he did it for you and me. In, um, back in the early 20th century, Princeton Seminary, which was the best seminary in the country at the time, had went apostate. They, they embraced the world. They embraced secularism. And, and a group of, of ministers separated from Princeton and they, they went to, um, they formed Westminster Seminary now in Pennsylvania. Probably one of the best seminaries in the country now. And the leader of that was, uh, movement was Jake Gresham Machen. Uh, he was a man, unfortunately, he died very young. He, he, shortly after the Reformation there, he died five years later. But when he was on his deathbed, his friends were coming to ministering to him, and he said, I thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Because he knew he was about to die, and he knew that in himself he had no merit. He was unworthy to untie the master sandal. But thank God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me through his active obedience that I could stand before God on judgment day, not with my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness on my behalf. Thank God for the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. This moment of Jesus' baptism was one of the most transcendent moments in redemption history for all three persons of the Godhead were revealed at once. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so goes the whole modalist view of the Trinity. But at this moment, the Son perfectly fulfills his role as the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit manifests in the form of a dove, a physical dove descending upon Jesus Christ most harmless of all animals. It has no talons. It, its beak is not meant to fight. It is a harmless animal. It is a symbol of peace in the Old Testament. And the Prince of Peace is anointed by the Spirit and power. Not that he never had the Spirit. He had the Spirit since the day he was, he was made. He was, he was conceived by the Spirit. But it was to validate his messianic ministry, which was to begin. And the Father spoke from heaven, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, expressed two things, that Jesus was loved and that Jesus was well-pleasing to his Father. When we come into a relationship with the triune God through Jesus Christ, we come to faith in him. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus descends upon our hearts and fills us with his peace, and fills us with his love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts 
We're set apart for Christ and for his work. And the father looks at us no longer as his enemies, but he looks at us as his sons and daughters. Pleased, not with us, but the work of his son, Jesus Christ, that's been attributed to us. Let me conclude. John the Baptist's ministry comes to an end. After Jesus was baptized, John would continue for a little while on before his, he was arrested. But his mission was complete. He would find himself in trouble with Herod and be arrested, and we'll get to that several chapters down. But ultimately, he would pay the price of a martyr. John's mission was done. And as he said to his disciples towards the end of his ministry, I must decrease, he must increase. I ask you today, we look to John the Baptist. Let us look to him as a model of understanding who he was compared to Christ. Understanding the privilege to serve Christ and how unworthy we are of even the most menial tasks. Understanding that we are here to serve Jesus and make much of him. To preach the gospel, the good news, which includes both the judgment of Christ and the love and forgiveness of Christ. person can't understand how much they've been forgiven until they realize how judged they are. The person who's facing 20 years to life in a courtroom doesn't realize the how joyful it is to be exonerated unless they know how terrible the penalty is. And so it is with John the Baptist as he prepares the way for Christ. Let us have that same spirit. May we prepare the way for Christ in our own hearts as we continue in bearing fruits and repentance, continuing in faith walking in the Spirit, putting to death the sins that so easily hinder us and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Thank you, dear God, for speaking to us today, for ministering to us. We pray that we would take to heart everything we've heard, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word to the glory and honor of Christ. Amen.